And not all fake news is just a fake story. A successful disinformation campaign ought to take into account cultural nuances. The antithesis of tribalism to have different sections of society collaborating in this way. If you feel a knee-jerk reaction to engage with something you read online, try and take a deep breath and just take a step back. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'm joined by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Samantha North. Samantha is a disinformation researcher and consultant whose work combines behavioral psychology with threat intelligence to understand and combat hostile online influence operations. She'll be talking with us today about political tribalism and why we're susceptible to disinformation. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Samantha, welcome to the show. Hi there. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's exciting to be here, and I hope we're going to have an interesting conversation. So you have such an interesting background, freelance journalist in Turkey, English teacher, data analyst. You lived for a year on the border of North Korea, and now you're working as a disinformation analyst. How did you get here? Yeah, it's been a, a long and winding road. Um, I ended up going to all those places in my, in my, in my 20s and um, because... I just wanted to see a, an experience, a diverse chunk of the world, really, you know, from China to, to Belgium to Qatar and everything in between. And taking jobs like that was a great way to do it. Um, and I think what led me to, to disinformation, um, it started really in 2014 when I was living in Istanbul and working there as a freelance journalist. And if you remember, in the summer of 2014, that was when ISIS became a thing, became prominent. And I think sort of being immersed in that environment and interacting with journalists who were involved in reporting on that situation in Syria um, got me interested in all that online propaganda and how ISIS were using social media to promote themselves and to spread terror. Um, and that kind of evolved eventually as 2016 came around to you know, the new discipline of, of countering disinformation, which seemed like a fascinating topic and world to be working in. You're working on a dissertation now regarding political tribalism at Bath University. Can you tell us about what led you to that and what the crux of this dissertation is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first of all, I think just, just to briefly explain the concept of political tribalism, it's, it's, it's a psychological theory that, that comes from something called social identity theory. And in that, um, it, it's, it's, it says that people divide themselves into groups so that they tend to gravitate towards you know others of the same different same features the same interests the same race class hobbies and so on and so forth and by displaying loyalty to that in-group they they boost their self-esteem but the other side of loyalty to the in-group is behaving negatively towards who they perceive as the out-group so that interested me a lot and originally i wanted to look at how um minority groups in the UK were being attacked on social media. So for example, um, there was a terrorist attack in 2017, I think it was, in Westminster in London. And there was this case of disinformation where a woman wearing a hijab 
was walking across Westminster Bridge, passing some of the victims lying on the ground. And her photo was taken and it was incorporated into a disinformation tweet that said something like, look at, look at this woman just walking, walking on by and ignoring these poor victims. You know, what a terror. Basically a dig at, at Islam and Muslims and linking them with the attack. And that tweet was later, um, I think it was later proved to be from a Russian troll, complete troll account. So, so to me, that incident really stuck in my mind. And this kind of online conflict between groups was something I wanted to explore further. And in the end, I ended up going, going beyond the, the minority groups thing to more of a, a social polarization between, between two, two big chunks of society. So in this case, it was the people who voted to remain in the European Union and the ones who voted to leave. And I wanted to look at how these two groups were behaving tribally, how they were attacking each other constantly on social media, um, and whether there was any room within those interactions for disinformation to, to sort of sneak in because they were so busy attacking each other, whether this could make them somehow more susceptible to, to sharing disinformation um, in a way to attack the opposing tribe. So throughout all your research, what surprised you the most? Well, um, I think this is more related to my work in disinformation, I think, rather than my, my academic research. Um, but I think in a, in a, in a broader sense, we, we've been looking at this now since 2016, really, and I've seen the same tactics used over and over again. Um, and yet it still seems to be effective, you know, like people still seem to fall victim to sharing these these tweets and these posts and even with all these fact-checking organizations now and you know these efforts that people are making to fact-check i still see a lot of things slipping through the net and i think the weak link in there is just human beings and their and their responses to their cognitive biases really so so that that that's one thing and then i think another thing that really stands out for me is how these malicious online influence techniques draw in so many ways from the world of digital marketing. You know, like I used to work in content marketing for a while and it's just exactly the same, you know, a lot of it, how they leverage social media, how they seek engagement, how they use online advertising. So, so I think in that, in that sense, the counter disinformation space can really benefit from input, not just from, from tech people, but from, from marketers, from psychologists and linguists potentially as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, disinformation doesn't work unless it's well marketed. You have to appeal to the people. Um, and the other side of that, the solution space that you talked about, we, we know a lot about what disinformation is and, and how it works, but it's the why. Why does it work on humans and is there anything we can do about it? Um, that's really where we need to make headway there. Exactly. Um, so we, we have a, a very wide range of listeners here, military members, academics, students, civilians, and, and more. Why should they be aware of political tribalism? And what do you think they need to know specifically in this area? I think it's the ubiquity of it, really. So, so in, in, in all the disinformation campaigns I've identified and, and studied, I, I've noticed this, these divisions, this, this, this goal to create and or exacerbate divisions. It runs through... All of, the, all of the campaigns that I've seen in, in various countries, not, not just in the West. So, so for example, um, I did a project early, uh, late last year on the Taiwan presidential election. And um, I didn't know much about Taiwan going in, but 
my initial research, I focused on identifying existing social and political cracks. And then, you know, I, I kind of knew what to identify when I was searching for, for bad actors and, and manipulation online. So, so they always target things that are there already and just amplify them and set people against one another until these, these cleavages become you know, so big that the whole society is polarized. And I think that's definitely what we're dealing with um, in the UK and in the US as well. And I think what, what's also quite important is um, a lot of the focus on, on countering disinformation at the beginning was looking at specific instances of fake news. So, you know, like, here's a story that's completely fake. This is, this is fake news. And, and that's what's, more, what's important. But I think what, what seems to me like a bigger danger is these ongoing conspiracy theory narratives that we see evolving, especially in, this, in, in the year 2020, because of the coronavirus in particular has been a, a massive force in kind of um, triggering conspiracy theories. And these conspiracy theories, like, for example, um, there's the one about Bill Gates that I keep seeing again and again, these these narratives that Bill Gates is, um, you know, making is highlighting the problem of the coronavirus because he wants to give us all compulsory vaccinations. I see so many different different takes on this narrative, and people really do believe it. Okay, Bill Gates does have some links to the World Health Organization. He, he, his organization funds it, I believe, or helps to fund it. So there is some element of truth in it. But it's this whole framework that's been built around this that, that's so harmful. And I think we've seen instances in, in real life now where people who believe in these conspiracy theories have been driven to, to real world action, like, like armed protests in Michigan, for example. You know, this is, coming, this is coming straight out of Facebook groups where it's rampant with conspiracy theories about the virus being a hoax. So, you know, I think we just have to keep that in mind that not all fake news is just a fake story. It's broader and it's more. Uh, it evolves over time. I think that's an interesting segue, as I just saw this morning that 28% of adults in the U.S. actually believe uh, the Bill Gates conspiracy that you were just referencing, um, which is which is frightening number. Um, and I think I think there's some interesting differences between um, you know what we saw with Brexit and what we've seen with different dif- disinformation campaigns in the U.S. Do you think there's really you know, through through your research, looking at ISIS disinformation, uh, through Brexit, through the U.S., do you think there's big cultural differences at all between those? I believe that a successful disinformation campaign um, ought to take into account cultural nuances. What I've what I've noticed is that they are tailored to to specific social norms and cultural um, nuances that you know issues issues that are resonant in each different cultural context. So. Like to give an example of that, in the US, trolls, like a troll army might be focusing on race, abortion, gun rights, freedom of speech, because that's such a big deal in the US, more so in the U- than in the UK. But, but in the UK, there are very different trigger issues. So like an astroturfing campaign, for example, they might talk about class divides, they might talk about the issues of Islam, pro and, or anti-Islam. Um, they might coalesce around terrorist attacks to start dividing society by being negative towards Muslims. And of course, there's the whole Brexit Brexit divide as well. 
So I think I think that's important. And again, I think to illustrate um, in a very granular level, I've seen Twitter accounts that are posing as US citizens, so that these sock puppet accounts, uh, in their bio, they might use emotionally resonant terms like, I'm a, I'm a family man and a Christian and I, I'm a patriot. And here's the US flag. So, yeah, a, U, a UK person would obviously not be, not be swayed by, by seeing that kind of Twitter account. It would probably have to be a football team and I don't know, something about being a being a Brexiteer. I don't know. But but the point is that, you know, they have to tailor them around specifics of each country. I think that really matters. And it is happening that way. What actions have you really seen from the British government and even, you know, other EU nations on breaking down that tribalism? You know, is it all reactive? Is there any actions taking place? Uh, you think that could be effective? Um, I, I, I think the British government has has had a number of working groups and task forces that have, you know, tried to to deal with the problem. But 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 I think that the the big issue here, at least in the UK, is that the overarching narrative around Brexit since 2016 has deliberately inflamed tribal attitudes in the UK rather than trying to water them down. And a lot of this has come from our own media and our own political figures. So in, in that sense, you know, we're feeding into disinformation, really. It, it's almost like the two things are going hand in hand. So I, I don't think that's very constructive, really. I don't think there's much chance of that, that tribalism in the UK coming to an end anytime soon. In terms of other EU nations, I would say, I mean, I'm not, I haven't done too much research into this, but I've seen a few interesting things coming out of Brussels from the European institutions. So there's quite a drive to regulate the platform's approach to handling disinformation content. Um, And then there's organizations like the EU Disinfo Lab and obviously NATO, who are working quite hard to raise awareness of this. And I've seen some, some interesting work. But of course, there's always that risk of them being seen as shutting down freedom of speech. So they do have quite a fine line to tread. And also in, in the Baltics, where you know they're very close to Russia and quite vulnerable in this sense, Lithuania is very interesting because they've started this task force, which they call elves, who are policing disinformation. And they have quite a nice approach where Um, different groups like the military on one side and the media on the other are actually working together to try and deal with this problem. So to me that that's that's a positive step because it's the antithesis of tribalism to have different sections of society collaborating in this way. And I think that's interesting. What do you think about the role of social media platforms in that in that fighting of tribalism? What role can they have to try and break that down? That's always been a been a knotty problem, I, I think, because there's a there's an element of deliberate design, you know, in in how they were how they were started in the first place. You know, it's they make their money by keeping us engaged and by keeping us on there. And I don't I think as long as that's happening, in a way, it doesn't matter what we're doing. If we're if we're arguing with a a troll or if we are posting photos of our pets, we're still on there, and that's still boosting the ad value. So I think at the beginning of all this, there wasn't really much of an incentive for them to do much about it. But I think as time as time has gone by and as real world harms have emerged from stuff that's posted on there, I really think they're they're swinging into action a lot more now. Like, for example, I think yesterday Twitter took down 7000 QAnon accounts and Facebook are apparently going to do the same thing in short order. So so I think, you know, particularly in 2020 with so much so much stuff happening so much negative stuff in real life they do feel pressure to take action and, and i hope really that 
it continues in that vein. So we're we're talking right now, you know, we're dealing with disinformation campaigns that are kind of relying on um, technology that I would say we're fairly used to in terms of the internet and even even the bots advancing a little here and there. But what do you think the future of disinformation looks like? Yeah, that's a massive question. Um, I've got I've got a few ideas. Um, I hope that it all come to be. But <laughs> um, first of all, there's going to be uh, I think a rise in disinformation from money. So you, you heard of the Macedonian teenagers of 2016. Well, they're still around and they're making money from coronavirus disinformation and, and websites around the Biden and Trump race for 2020. I think that's going to go beyond countries like Macedonia. Then there may even be homegrown actors who are trying to make money um, through online advertising on clickbait websites. So I think that's something really to keep in mind. Um, in addition, there could be an increase in malinformation. That's defined, uh, that's information that's true but it's being used in a nefarious way. And there's also deep fakes. You know, we hear a lot of mention of deep fakes as being the next scary frontier in disinformation. And I'm not sure. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some and, you know, there's some quite convincing ones out there and the technology is fascinating. But I'm not sure at this point if they're overhyped or if they, they really pose a danger. Obviously, they have the potential to kind of erode the foundations of truth because, you know, we won't be able to trust any video content anymore. But so far, I haven't seen them used that much in, in prominent disinformation campaigns. I think the most recent one was Nancy Pelosi when she was like seen slurring her words, but it was actually a manipulated video. So that, that's the main things I think that, that come to mind for the near future. So, you know, you, you get to look at things at a very different lens than, than through what we're looking really. Um, so the question really is, what are we missing? So the Army and the Department of Defense for the United States, what are we missing right now? What are we not thinking about or paying enough attention to? Firstly, don't fixate only on foreign actors. There's, there's domestic origin stuff as well that can also be just as prevalent and just as damaging. Like the Boogaloo, for example, the militia, there's, there's a lot of very divisive social media content coming from them. And not all of it is disinformation. It's just sort of inflammatory, aggressive stuff. So that can be dangerous for, for Homeland Security. The whole thing about being aware of how conspiracy theories evolve over time and maybe monitoring them on a, you know, on a, a scale of a year instead of maybe a couple of years, instead of just very more focused content. And also, I think a lot of the bad stuff goes on in private local Facebook groups for, for different regions, like different cities, different states um, on, that, on that level. And that's where I think the disinformation purveyors can really influence genuine grassroots people through those groups so that they really need to be monitored. It's also really important to, to keep in mind all the time, you know, what are the incentives behind this campaign? You know, why would this person build this website with this clickbaity stuff on it? You know, what are they trying to achieve? Is it ideological? Is it just for money? And I think we need a lot more research into into that into that and into the whole disinformation for profit space. Yeah, and interestingly enough, we had uh, Vincent O'Neill on, and he actually gave a presentation on the whole information disruption industry um, and, and what what was to be made of all that. So. If you were talking to future researchers right now who are in, you know, middle school and high school, uh, or uh, I don't know what the exact British term would be, is it is not really grade school there? Uh, secondary school. Secondary school. So ta talking to kids that are in secondary school now, 
you know, what advice would you give them? Why do they want to work in this field? Yeah, well, well why work in this field? Um, for me, I, I think this field is, is so diverse and it just brings together uh, so many interesting disciplines. So you've got your data science, you've got your psychology, digital marketing, journalism, politics, IR, linguistics, so many different things. So, so for people who see themselves more as generalists, it's actually a great field because, you know, there are all these different facets in it. And, and there's a lot of scope to carve out your own niche, um, you know, and you're doing interesting work that's also in the public good. And there's plenty of demand for it. So, you know, you, you can't lose in that in that sense. In terms of advice, I would say get some get some experience in digital marketing and, and learn about how the attention economy works. You know, like um, a couple of books I'd recommend. Firstly, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book on surveillance capitalism is a really good one. It's it's quite a heavy read, but it's totally worth sticking with it because that reveals all of how this Google and Facebook make their money, basically. So that's essential reading. And then something like Robert Cialdini's Influence is also a good one just to learn about the marketing psychology behind all of this. And always keep in mind, you know, the humans, the, the people who are creating this stuff and the target audience. You know, what, what cognitive biases do the target audience have that makes them susceptible to disinformation? I think those are some great pieces of advice, um, not just for them, I think for everyone, though, everyone uh, of all age groups and all industries when thinking about susceptibility to disinformation. So we're going to move on now to uh, our rapid fire questions that we ask every guest. So first one, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? In terms of like what scares me or what I'm fascinated with? You can go either way with it. Generally, generally speaking, it's, it's what concerns you, but uh, you can be fascinated with them as well. I'll go in a more positive route, I think. Um, so... Since, since, since COVID-19 has happened, um, you know, a lot of the world has really shifted towards working remotely and a lot of people have started doing businesses online. So I think a lot about this kind of digital entrepreneurship and how this might change how we do business and how, how we work, basically, um, and what that might mean for the world. Not so much for disinformation per se, but more, more in a general sense. I find that quite fascinating. No, that's a great way to look at it. And you've provided us with the first positive thing of 2020. So we appreciate that. <laughs> there, had to be, there had to be something, right? <laughs> now, when I was doing research for the show, I went to your website. I went to the About Me page. I read that. So what we want from, from this answer is something that's not on that page. What's something about you that most people might not know? What's not on that page? Um, God, I can't remember what's on that page, but uh, I'll, I'll, give it, I'll give it a shot. I think it mentions on there that, that I used to live on the North Korean border between China and, and North Korea, right? Um, in a city called Dandong. So a long time ago, back in 2006, I think before, they still had Kim Jong-il as the, as the ruler. That's the, the dad. And... Um, it was possible in the wintertime, there was a part where the river was very narrow between China and North Korea, and the borderline was very overgrown with, with trees and brush. So some friends and I decided that we wanted to touch North Korean soil. <clears throat> so we skated, we slipped across this ice where it was frozen over, and we put our feet on North Korean soil. <laughs> and it was very exciting. And I think someone saw us, I think a guard might have seen us from in the bushes, um, but nothing happened because it was much less tense back in 2006. So we came back and everything was fine. We were not kidnapped. <laughs> that's, that's a great anecdote. I'm glad you went into that because I saw that on your page and I wanted to hear the story behind that. Um, braver than I, I don't, e I don't even go out on my back patio when it's hot because the cement burns my feet and 
you'll go into North Korea. <laughs> so finally, our, our last question here. Uh, what's your favorite film? That's actually an easy one. It's Silence of the Lambs. Classic film, um, amazing acting. And I really like the dark psychological side of it. And, you know, how those two main characters team up to solve this puzzle and catch the bad guy. And just a, just an excellent film. Excellent. Yeah, great film. Excellent uh, portrayal of Hannibal Lecter. Is there anything else you wanted to get across to our audience that we didn't cover today? And where can they find you if they want to get in touch with you? It's going to be a difficult few months. You know, we've got we've got COVID to deal with and we've got the, the U.S. election coming up. Um, there will be, I think, lots of attempts to to manipulate us in the run up to that. So I think we just have to be really aware of, of what we read and what we engage with. And I would say, actually, as a, a really major key takeaway for that and in general, if you feel compelled to, um, like if you feel a knee-jerk reaction to engage with something you read online, try and take a deep breath and just take a step back. Don't engage that person. Don't share that thing that you really want to share. You know, I think that that would really help. And if you want to reach me, uh, I'm on Twitter at S-J-N-R-T-H or my website, which is samanthanorth.com. And you can get in touch with me via that. And yeah, I'm very happy to hear from people and chat about disinformation and everything related. That's great, Samantha. Thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us further explore the weaponization of information and disinformation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Samantha North, disinformation researcher and consultant. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.